listener production. Just having someone there just saying no, that's not happening and just being there holding you, it, it sounds simple and reductive but it's because when you're in that space you do need to get to the most basic responses that you have as a human and that you as a living thing want to live. Life is built for organisms to want to keep existing, to want to live. Hi, I'm Jess Rowe and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. The last time I caught up with Dr Matt Agnew, who some of you may know from The Bachelor or from his work as an astrophysicist, it was one of the most intimate conversations I've ever had on the podcast. For the first time, Matt opened up about his long battle with mental illness and how disruptive it's been to his life and career. Before we get started, a gentle warning, our conversation touches on suicide. Um, About a bit over a decade ago, I um, was diagnosed with clinical depression and have been on antidepressants essentially since then for over a decade. Um, where, um, so I, I, um, tried to end my life in 2021. I have since, um, I've had several more, um, stumbles and, and falls quite deep into the hole. Um, and... It's exhausting when when I'm in a trough or, or a low. It's 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 exhausting. I see a psychologist and a psychiatrist regularly. Um, I have two GPs, a whole suite medical team. Um, I, I I get frustrated sometimes because it's it just feels like so much effort and work and financially very expensive for me and I imagine thousands of Australians to exist <laughs> for, for me to have a baseline that isn't dangerous is so much work. Do you know it is so special to have you back here in the studio face to face? We had the most phenomenal conversation and you were so open about your mental illness and the impact that that has had, not only on me, but so many people. Are you aware of that? To an extent, yeah. I made sure going into our chat that this was something that was for me and it was a level of therapy and catharsis for me to talk about this very openly and vulnerably. I was aware there may be a spillover into impacting other people's lives, but I think it was really important for me to go in. I can't rely on an outcome that's out of my control to be 
how I marked whether or not it was a rewarding experience for me. Yeah, so I was aware that that was something that could happen and it did. And there was a significant number of people who commented and also contacted me directly and it was just overwhelming and overwhelmingly positive. And it was both heartbreaking and heartwarming. Heartbreaking in the number, the sheer number of people who reached out with their own stories, either themselves or a loved one that had gone through something similar. But it was heartwarming hearing how people felt heard and felt seen and the number of people who said they could relate so strongly to the way I described my own experiences and that they felt this vindication or, or comfort in knowing that there are others who go through these things and there's not something broken about us going through these experiences. And so it was this interesting balance of emotions of heartbreaking. It was so common for people to experience this, but heartwarming that people were finding this level of comfort and solace in hearing me share my story. And how did you feel after you did it? Because obviously it touched so many people, but it's so intrinsically a part of you and it's a very private part of you. And when you put yourself out there, there is a level of fear really thinking, oh, how is this going to go? So how did you feel afterwards? Exhausted. There was a very real emotional exhaustion after it's, I guess you're kind of almost in a, an elevated fight or flight state talking about something like that. I've spoken for an hour. It doesn't sound like something that should be fatiguing, but I came out feeling quite exhausted and emotionally quite drained. That was the, I guess, immediate aftermath of the chat. Beyond that, it did feel like a relief for me to take this off my shoulders and to share it and be very candid and, and open about something that has been historically for myself and, and I imagine for thousands of Australians something to be ashamed of or, or that it's got to be hidden and put away in a dark little box in the back of our mind and it's something not to be spoken about and there was this real catharsis and relief for me sharing it and so yeah there was there was fatigue but there was a lot of relief as well. That word relief, I think, is so important and it is so pertinent to this discussion. I know when I shared my experience of postnatal depression, not publicly initially, but with my husband and then with my psychiatrist, those gradual senses of, oh, a load coming off your shoulders because there's a sense when you're carrying it yourself it's terrifying. But once you put voice to those thoughts, they lose some of their potency, their control over you. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's, it's kind of a nebulous beast until you articulate what it is you're going through. And I think there is that dismantling of power that it has over you by speaking about it. I think there's probably also tied up in fear of judgment and that shame and having to hide it that when you first speak about it and having someone respond so warm and lovingly and supportively, you realize, okay, no, this isn't something that I should be ashamed of. Or this isn't something people are going to judge me about. This is something, a incredibly challenging disorder or illness that I'm carrying alone and isolated from others. And as soon as I share it, suddenly I know everyone wants to help. They're there to support and people deeply love you. 
and want to support you. And I think there's a relief there as well that realizing this isn't shameful. This is something that your nearest and dearest and even strangers in the case of me sharing my story want to be there and provide love and support. Because shame can be so destructive, can't it? It can make you keep things secret. And that sense, though, of you fighting almost through that shame and seeing the response must be quite something. Yeah, it was. And I kind of assumed with any of these things, when you put it into the public space, in particular through social media channels as well, you're expecting one or 2% trolls, right? It doesn't matter what it is you're talking about. You're expecting there's some jerks that are going to throw their hat in the ring and just be nasty. And I kind of expected that and it just never came. And that it kind of is tied into that shame that there's people who might try and exploit and, and hit you in those unjustified perspectives that it's shameful, but it just wasn't there. And that really surprised me because I assumed it's just, it's low-hanging fruit for trolls. It's really easy stuff to be nasty about and try and inflict damage, unwarranted damage. And it just wasn't there. And that was a real surprise for me and really warm to know that even despite the prevalence of trolls, this was something that people didn't feel the need to throw nastiness around and, and perpetuate that stigma of shame around this. What other things surprised you, Matt, about talking, sharing your story? The volume of people who had a similar story. As I mentioned, it was truly heartbreaking to read how common a place it was. I think that surprised me. There was, I'd had some friends who had spoken vulnerably in in the past and one of the things they had told me about and I kind of didn't believe them, which was people will share their story with you. And in my head, this was something, it was small. I was just sharing a story. There might be a handful of people who listen and think, oh, you know, thank you for sharing your story and and being vulnerable and trying to destigmatize these things. And then obviously the response was so much more larger than I was expecting. And, And then people did start sharing their own stories of trauma and really challenging periods they had gone through. And it's silly because I'd been warned and yet I dismissed their things because I just thought that, that people aren't going to find and, and have that response to my story. I don't think it's it will resonate with that many people. I don't, I don't think I'm particularly interesting, but it did. And so being aware that people were going to share their trauma with me and that I needed to be careful with regards to vicarious trauma was something that surprised me that I, I kind of I'd been advised about, but but wasn't truly prepared, I think. And so I had to take a moment to make sure, okay, it's important for me to read all of these stories that people have shared with me. I can't realistically respond to all of them by sheer numbers, but also because I think it's taking a, a really big load on emotionally to become deeply invested in everyone's story. And that sounds awful, but it's the, the reality of, of receiving hundreds and thousands of traumatic stories people are sharing that I couldn't in good faith respond to all of them and maintain my own mental health. That's an important boundary and I think it's something all of us can learn from. And often I think though when people share their stories with you, they're not actually asking, fix me. It's that sense of, oh, 
I can share this. I don't have to carry this on my own. So it's this notion, I think, of being heard and seen. Yeah, I think so. And I did respond kind of in a more broader sense. I shared a story to, to let people know that I am reading all of these and, I, and I, I wanted people to know that they were sharing stories and they were being read, they were being heard, they were being seen, just that I can't physically respond to them all. And I think, yeah, there's this, again, in the same way I got relief by sharing, I imagine there was an element of relief for a lot of them to be able to share it. Maybe they hadn't spoken about it ever. And this may have been the first time they had articulated something to share their own experiences or even to say something about a loved one who had gone through a really challenging or or awful experience and them kind of being able to discuss how it impacted them as well. So I think, yeah, there's this sort of comfort and safety in being able to share this and, and these things with other people. And again, it's that kind of getting away from that stigma of shame and, and fear of judgment and being vulnerable and just saying, no, you know what? The way we get through this, both individually and collectively, is by sharing and talking because mental illness pushes us to isolation and that's where it's the last place we want to be. As soon as we're isolated, mental illness is winning. So by talking and connecting with others, that's how we get through at the kind of at the, the grassroots level and, and then beyond that, obviously, we seek out medical assistance and intervention as well. But, but certainly the things that we all have access to is that, that connection. And also by you sharing in the way you did, you give other people permission. I hope you know how powerful that is, Matt. Yeah, I think I probably didn't realise how significant that was. Um, that aspect to it, to give people permission, as as you say. I think I kind of thought about it a lot when I first kind of spoke with my parents, for example, and mentioned that this was something, this was a discussion I wanted to have and share publicly. And one of the things they asked was, yeah, why? What is the outcome? And I mentioned, obviously, the key outcome has to be for me. I, I can't control how other people respond to that. But one of the things I, I did acknowledge was that probably the only silver lining to having a mental illness is being able to talk about it and hopefully help others. And I think in that way, being able to talk about it and, and give permission for other people to share their own experiences, I think it, it's an impact that I've made. And it's, yeah, the only upside to mental illness is, is trying to hopefully help other people by sharing what you've gone through. And that also is very powerful. I'm a huge believer in silver linings in the midst of when there is so much despair and you feel like I will never, ever get out of this. When you do get yourself through that, I do think one of those superpowers is empathy and that you have a much deeper sense of what other people are going through and that we all have a story. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's that, can't remember who said it, that saying, you know, you, everyone's fighting a battle that you know nothing about, be kind. And I think that kind of sings very true to that idea of having deeper empathy for others and sharing stories, I think helps both yourself, but also helps other people to understand, okay, actually, this is something I had no idea about people battling this in silence. And 
overwhelmingly people are battling in silence these things because they are insidious and they're dark and they're stigmatized and all of those things. So I think, yeah, it does help with empathy, both talking about it and, and obviously myself, but also other people hearing it. It really helps kind of elevate. And I think now, especially so, I think we all kind of benefit from more empathy, right? Of course we do. But also another part of that as well, and I'm still learning about this, is having empathy for ourselves. And often when you are going through an episode, it's very hard to have that for yourself. Absolutely. And I think I, like a lot of people in this regard, I'm great at telling my other friends to be kind to yourself, but we're hopeless at telling ourselves. And I think that self-empathy, that be kind to yourself. We hear it a lot from people saying you should do this, but we we have a hard time putting that into practice. And I think sharing that story or sharing our story or talking vulnerably about things, people respond in a certain way and it helps us understand, okay, the way people are supporting me and empathizing with me and showing compassion, I should have been doing more of this to myself. And so I think there is that it helps unlock that self-empathy and being kind to yourself a lot more. And it's something we all should do. We're, we speak to ourselves so awfully. You would never speak to anyone. Exactly. Anywhere near. No, no. We never talk to anyone we love often in the way that we talk to ourselves in our heads. So you might be out walking, you might be out driving at the moment, whatever it is, however you're listening to Matt and I chat with you right now, say something kind to yourself. Yes, yes. Be kind. Love <laughs> yourself. yourself. Give yourself a cuddle. Yeah. Say, I don't know, I'm brilliant or I'm beautiful or I'm funny or whatever it is. I mean, I'm still working on that. And I think for all of us, there are different times where we need to work harder on ourselves, but in a gentle way. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if yeah. that's possible. Yeah. You mentioned your, your mum and dad earlier. How did they feel listening to your conversation that we had? I mean, they've obviously lived through it. So there was obviously no revelations for them. They were very aware of how dark things got for me. And I think I spoke last time, I went through this incredibly challenging period and I had a number of resources to me to help support me. One of them being a loving family and, and parents that were always there to step up and be anywhere they needed to be to help me through it. And I'm very privileged in that way, but I think they still found it confronting to hear it all in one block when you do compile it down into an hour conversation. It's quite intense. So for them, it was at times very hard to listen to, but they said it was the way it was spoken about was very respectful, very kind and very, I think, just important to have these conversations. And, and they asked, how did I feel afterwards? I, I called them kind of immediately after we spoke and just said how it, it felt like such a relief and this weight off my shoulders. And so they were proud that I shared something and, and had this conversation and spoke vulnerably about something that's very hard to talk about and really pleased that it had helped me personally. And I think for them seeing now this kind of secondary effect of, of helping others, they're 
really pleased that that's a result as well and, and really proud that my sharing has been able to have a positive impact on others as well. Oh, they would be so proud of you. <laughs> I'm proud of you and I'm <laughs> not you. your mum, but I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, it's um, yeah, that, I mean, they're always, especially having lived through it and seen it, they had their, you know, the shields were up a little bit. They kind of were aware, am I opening myself up and potentially putting myself at risk again mentally. They know that there's, like I spoke about with trolls, there's this level of commentary and trolling that can come with anything you do publicly. And they were wary of that and knowing that I do have delicate mental health at times, was this something that was actually going to be unhelpful for me? I tried to convince them and, and let them know that I, I felt very robust and, and I wouldn't go into this if I wasn't in a really strong and, and rock solid place. And I think they're really, yeah, or not just pleased, obviously delighted that I haven't been impacted negatively and that I've come out in a just as robust place and have felt like it's been a, an overwhelmingly positive thing for me personally and, and also for other people as well. And how are you doing in terms of your mental health? Good, good. Yeah, I um, I mean, we all have ups and downs and, and obviously I'm no exception there. And I think the combination of medication and psychiatric care and psychological therapy, that combination helps get my mental health to a point where those up and downs are within that band of, I can work through this, I can manage this, I can get out of these lows and enjoy the highs in a healthy way, which is is where everyone should be. And typically that's where most people are. Mental illness has a, that effect of sometimes elevating us too high or sometimes dragging us down. And that's where we need that kind of medical intervention to help us get to that place where we can manage the ups and downs. And so I, I think I'm, I'm in that really good band where I have downs like anyone else and I get anxious like anyone else and I have moments where I'm depressed like anyone else but it's not that debilitating anxiety and it's not these periods of extended depression where I kind of am barely functioning and the bipolar swings up and downs are not getting so far up or so far down that it becomes a riskier situation for me. So I think the, the combination that myself and my psychologist and psychiatrist have worked towards with that combination of medication and management strategies and being able to check in with myself and take stock and recognize certain signs to be able to curb the impacts of them and maintain being within that band, I think we're in a really good spot and I certainly feel really robust and, and it's one of the longest periods of time where I've felt that way. So I'm... I'm I'm feeling good. And, Isn't that wonderful? Uh, yeah. And, and I think it's important as well. I, I still see my psychologist and psychiatrist regularly, even when things are good, because I think, unfortunately, one of the things with mental health is we have that kind of common idea that when things are good, oh, it's all... It's all peachy. I don't need to do this I'm anymore. Done. You know, it's like yes, a common I'm cold. There now. Yeah, I've bopped it on the head, sorted, mm. done. Depression, you're out of here. And that's not how it works. It can kind of come here and there and sometimes it can sneak up, sometimes it can build gradually and that check-in is really important. I think 
and I mentioned this in our last chat, it's really hard at the moment more than ever with cost of living crisis that these are inherently very expensive medical intervention uh, therapies and, and psychiatric care. So it is harder to be able to commit to that and, and I'm very fortunate in that way that I can utilize and, and access those things financially. I think for many others, they can't. And I think that's where there does need to be more work in that space. But there's also, I think, as I mentioned, those things we all have access to, which is talking and connecting and staying away from the isolating experiences and, and making sure we always do reach out and stay in, in, in touch with, with our loved ones. What I think is so sensational about your story, Matt, and I'm so glad that you're doing well now, is it's one of hope. Often when we talk about mental illness, I mean, it is so difficult and there is so much despair and sadness, but we all need stories of hope and ways of thinking, I can work through this or there's someone I love going through this. There's people listening now who'd be thinking, how do I get through this? But your story is an example of there is a way through. Perhaps you could share, first of all, if there's people listening who are struggling, what would your advice be to them? Yeah, so I think similar to what I mentioned then, the first thing is to connect and reach out. And it's also probably the hardest thing because it is scary. It's something that we as a society haven't got right in terms of how to talk about it and making sure it's a much easier conversation to have. There's still so much stigma that shackles it down. Thanks to people like you, we're getting rid of that. Remember that. Yeah, that's right. And and like I said, it's the silver lining, trying to sh- shatter those shackles. So I think the first thing is to reach out and that's going to be probably the hardest thing because once you've got one person in your corner, there's support now and now the next person, you've got someone to help you with that. If you need to then start seeking more medical intervention, you've got someone to help you with that. It's that first reach out that's the most challenging. And I think the overwhelming thing is people love you and it feels daunting and scary and that there's shame and judgment, but people love you. Their response, even if you, you may misconstrue it as negative, but it's more concern because suddenly they've found out something that they're almost devastated they didn't know you're going through this and that they can't help. It's it's not like a physical injury where often there's something obvious. It's like, you know, you've got a broken leg. They, they, they we're, we're trained to be able to empathize and respond to physical illness much more readily. And people, I think, are very confused with how to respond to mental illness. And so I think even if there's a response that maybe doesn't seem immediately as compassionate, as supportive as you like, there's probably an internal struggle where your loved one is is trying to figure out what's the right response, that they're upset to know that you've been going through this by yourself. You've been walking this path alone. And so there's this should I have known more? Why didn't I do anything earlier? I should have picked up signals. And sometimes there can be that kind of response. So given a really long answer there, but I think the first step is is to reach out. Like I said, isolation is mental illness's playground and that's where it wants to push you. And so 
reaching out, connecting, get your loved ones inside your circle, then I think the next one is to start seeking out that medical attention. And that's where it does become harder because that requires financial resources that not everyone has access to. Certainly bulk billing, you can usually get into a GP in some way where bulk billing is is available to you and they are able to prescribe medication that can assist with things like anxiety and depression. And the ideal outcome is that that is enough to ensure that you avoid any catastrophic direction that you're going. If not, there are additional avenues through the psychological therapy and psychiatric care. Again, they have a financial burden attached to them, but it's unfortunate it is still the kind of gold standard in terms of trying to tackle mental illness. Um, I'm just trying to think of the strategies that are more accessible to everyone. And I think that getting the people in your corner and building that team around you and then accessing a GP that's bulk build is something that at least everyone has access to to a degree. To begin that process. And and also, I mean, I talk about this with my listeners often. I take my antidepressants. I love them. <laughs> they keep me well. Oh, that great. Sugar. Yeah, yeah. Sugar, <laughs> my antidepressants. My family, <laughs> my pussycats, all of that. But, yeah. You know, they're the sorts of things that work for me. Of course, you're involved with Beyond Blue. Tell us a little bit about their initiative that's coming up that is going to help people as well. Yeah, so I'm an ambassador for their Big Blue Table and the basic premise is to share a meal with your friends and loved ones and to discuss some of these things we're discussing right now. And they, they have a bunch of conversation starters to help initiate some of those chats and they start from something that's a little more irreverent, you know, what what were some of your dreams as a child, things like that. And they get kind of increasingly more intimate and more uh, serious and vulnerable. And so the idea is to bring people together in what I think is arguably one of the most quintessential human experiences, sharing a meal. And, and it doesn't have to be a fancy meal. I'm a crap housewife. <laughs> it could be some spag bowl. <laughs> well, that's it. I'm just going to do, I think I'm, I love a picnic. So picnic, I'll make, you know, the cucumber and cheese sambos and, you know, it doesn't have to and be some anything. chocolate. We need something sweet that's there it, too, That's Matt. it. So it doesn't have to be a, a banquet or anything like that. It's got to be whatever you want it to be, but it's bring your friends and loved ones together, share a meal and try and have some of these conversations. And if we tear down those walls of stigma, then we normalize those conversations and we make changes in society about what mental illness looks like and what the conversations should look like and that they should be something that we are much more comfortable having eventually outside of our friends and loved ones and, and just with anyone and being able to share just the same as if you've got a cold and someone invites you out and you say, you know what, I can't, I'm a bit under the weather, you know, I need to rest up. You can say, you know what, actually, I'm having a bit of a moment. I need to do X, Y, Z, part of my management strategy. I'll catch up with you soon. And I think that's something that we do really want to normalise. We want to make we it. Of course we do. We yeah. want to have these conversations. The point though being... They are hard conversations. It can be difficult for some people to know what to say because they think, oh, I'm going to say the wrong thing or... But really, it's just about starting. It is, yeah. Yeah, and I think there is a concern, I think, when people have of saying the wrong thing. And I think part of it has probably been perpetuated by some of society and, and probably the media and Hollywood have done this a little bit with this 
kind of fragile nature of someone with mental illness and that they're one comment away from completely falling apart, having a meltdown and behaving in really dangerous and erratic ways or doing things that they don't normally do. And I think when you're going through a really dark time, you, you do change a bit in your behaviors, but you don't completely fall apart. I'm speaking in generalities here. I think it's probably important to note there are obviously very serious disorders where they do, but in some of these other ones, depression, anxiety, some of the more common mental illnesses, people aren't in this state where a wrong comment that's not said with malice or negative intent, it's just said maybe just unaware that people are going to fall apart or take enormous umbrage with what they're saying. I think that if you get it wrong, someone's more likely to say, oh, actually, that's not how it works or they're going to more gently correct that and that's then a learning experience for everyone involved. So I think it is hard to know what to say at times and my friends and and loved ones have, when I've been in really dark spots, they're not sure what to do and when you're in a really bad spot, it is a case of sometimes just having someone turn up and being there and... And love you. The love. It is. We're such social creatures that just having someone there a cuddle, a hug, an embrace. We know this releases chemistry in our brains that helps. We're built to seek out other people and connect and be within a group of loved ones and as a collective. And that's tremendously important with mental illness. And and it doesn't fix, it's not a panacea, of course, but it's something that can help try and get you off rock bottom and even if it's a centimetre off rock bottom, that can be the difference sometimes. The response, you, you don't need to know the response. No one knows the right response in these things. So, And life isn't binary in the sense of there's a wrong way and a right way to handle it. And I think that point you make about love and showing up and just showing up by being present, not having to feel I've got to fix this or offer a solution, but I love you and I'm here with you. I know with my mum who has bipolar, there'd be times when she'd be very unwell and I would just say, I promise you, you're going to get better. And she'd be like, no, I'm always going to feel like this. I said, no, I promise you, you'll get better. I'm here with you. I'm not going anywhere. And that's that's, I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> that's it. And when that's kind of what you need to hear when you're in the spot where you don't believe it's going to get better, that let me cut my losses. Uh, this is... It's too hard. Just having someone there, someone just saying, no, that's not happening. And just being there, holding you, it sounds simple and reductive, but it's because when you're in that space, you do need to get to the most basic responses that you have as a human and that you as a living thing want to live. You're built, life is built for organisms to want to keep existing, to want to live. And when your brain takes you to a place to reject such a basic fundamental initiative that life has, you need time to just remind you that, no, your brain's wrong. And that doesn't fix it, but sometimes that's what you need to hear and that's what you need is just these really very, very basic fundamental things to try and bring you back from the edge. 
I hope you realise, Matt, the power of what you're doing. The conversation that we had when you spoke about your mental illness got so much response. It's one of our most listened to episodes and the feedback from people, the comments through our social media was so extraordinary. So I hope you're really aware of what your conversation has done. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, I guess. Like, I... (laughs) not articulating myself particularly well. Um, yes, you are. I, you said nebulous I, before. That was very scientific. I know, I know. <laughs> Just sliding some astrophysics <laughs> wherever I can. Yeah, I I don't think I have a complete grasp of how much of an impact it's made. I obviously am aware from the social media post and seeing the response, both comments and message-wise, that it has had a much more significant reach than I anticipated and a much more overwhelming response than I anticipated. I probably don't have a good grasp of the magnitude of it. And I think, like I mentioned, there's this kind of double-edged sword where it's great that it's had such an enormous reach and impact, but it's also heartbreaking to know how much it's resonating, how many people it's resonating with because that's indicative of a bit of a societal issue that it's so prevalent within society to have mental illness and that so many people feel hurt for the first time from this, that there's so many that had potentially been suffering in silence and doing this alone at such scale Having that conversation with you was such a privilege for me. People will ask me what have been the most powerful conversations that you've had and being able to hold space with you and have you share in that way is something that I will never forget and was so very important for me to be able to sit and do that with you. So thank you for your beautiful big heart, your bravery, your vulnerability and your love of chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, You're thank a special you. man, Dr. Matt. Love you to bits. I really thank do. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise. Love you too, Jess. Isn't he just the ant's pants in every single way? He is the most amazing man. Second to only my husband, I would say. Oh, my goodness. Being able to talk with him again, to hear how well he's doing, but also just the really beautiful way he articulates how we can make sense of our mental health and how we can live better, more fulfilling lives. I just love him. I adore him. I could keep going on and on about him, but what is really important to know is that this October, it's Mental Health Month, and Beyond Blue is inviting you to fight the stigma of mental health with their big blue table to raise funds and awareness. Now, Matt spoke about his big blue table and that how each meal can lead to life-changing conversations and to help create a safe space where we all feel comfortable talking about about our mental health anywhere, 
any time. These hard conversations are so important because they make us feel connected and understood. Matt shared some great resources in our chat. Remember that Beyond Blue is always available if you need support for your own mental health or if you're supporting someone who is going through a tough time. We're going to put those links in the show notes for you. So please have a look at those. As well, we also will have some links for how you can set up your own big blue table. Don't you love the sound of that? I'm going to do one, but make sure I'm serving a lot of caramel slice, one of my faves. Now, for more big conversations like this, subscribe and follow the Jessro Big Talk Show podcast. It means you'll stay up to date with all of my special guests. Now, if there's anyone who you know who you think will enjoy this conversation, and it might also help begin a conversation, one of those hard conversations about our mental health, it is very easy to share it. All you need to do is to tap the three dots and pass it on. If you enjoyed this episode with Matt and you haven't listened to our first chat, go and have a listen to that. It really is quite something. If you already have listened to it, have a listen to our chat with Matt's great friend, Abby Chatfield. Yeah, it is kind of like a wheelhouse. It's going to therapy once a week and going to therapy when you think things are good. That's the biggest thing I think a lot of people that go to therapy and are antidepressants say is when you think you're okay and you're like, I have nothing to talk about, that's when you do the actual work underneath. The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. 